Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, all you listeners on the Four Persons Radio Network. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with Ken Litchfield. Thanks for tuning in. Really glad to have you. We have a great show planned for you today. We're going to be talking about the Magisterium. The Magisterium is, if you have a question about the Magisterium, you can give us a call here at 515 602 9655 and you can ask your question and I will tune in or I'll let you know we'll answer your question and if you're uh, if you don't have any questions you can just continue to listen I got a lot of material to go through here and good morning can, Ken how you doing this morning I'm doing well. How are you there, John? Doing great. Just uh, wanted to call in and uh, get a chance to listen while I had the opportunity. And am I coming through okay? Because I'm uh, logged yeah. in through the the Firefox browser as opposed to... Loud and clear. Um, I, I hear, you, hear your voice loud and clear. Microphone's working. It's a wonderful thing. Great. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll get on with the show. So the magisterium is the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, especially as given by the bishops or the Pope. It is the official and authoritative teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody has a magisterium. It might be the Pope, Cardinal, Bishop, famous a famous Protestant theologian, a local pastor, or an individual that guides an everyday Christian in how to understand the Bible and how it applies to our life. Sometimes the Pope people follow is themselves. Everybody wants to be their own Pope because they, they don't want somebody to tell them what it mean, the Bible means. In our modern American society, few people want to accept authority, especially when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible or religion in general. People want to believe what they are convinced is right. Protestants have a hard time believing that sinful men can teach infallibly on God's behalf. Yet, they're willing to listen to some guy's interpretation of the Bible. 
Many Protestants follow the tradition of sola scriptura that was invented by Martin Luther. They think that 2 Timothy 3.16 supports their idea that the Bible is the highest authority. But this is what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, starting at verse 14. But as you continue, let me start again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from your childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. However, we have to keep in mind that the scripture of Timothy's youth would have been the Septuagint, and that's important to know because the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Jewish Old Testament that included the seven books that are now missing from Protestant Bibles. So 2 Timothy 3.16 actually supports the Catholic and Orthodox understanding of the Old Testament and not the modern Protestant Jew and Jewish inter understanding of the Old Testament. In the Catholic Church, we recognize that the deposit of faith which is the teaching of the church, originally consisted in oral tradition of Jesus, handed on to the apostles and those they taught, as shown in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus sends his, tells his apostles to go out and teach everything that he taught them. We also recognize that some of what Jesus taught was written down in the Gospels, and how it was interpreted is shown in the epistles of Peter, Paul, John, James, and Jude. The Bible does not teach that the Bible is the highest authority or that everything is in the Bible. The Bible does contain sufficient information for someone to be saved through reading it. Interpretation of the Bible is what is really important. We find that in uh, Acts, I think. I think it's chapter 9 where Philip is talking with the Ethiopian eunuch and the eunuch, Philip asks the Ethiopian guy, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I know what I am reading if unless somebody interprets it for me? So we always need an interpreter and sometimes that interpreter is yourself or somebody else that you trust. And that is your magisterium. Now let's find out where the magisterium comes from. Here's the Old Testament roots of the magisterium. In Genesis chapter six, God spoke to Noah and told him to build an ark. Noah talked to his family about building the ark and they, his sons did not ask him well, where is that in the Bible <laughs> that we have to build this ark? No, his sons believed their father and they built the ark. In Genesis chapter 12, we find that God spoke to Abraham and told him to leave the land of Ur and go to the promised land. Now, 
Abraham's tribe did not ask Abraham, you know, well, where is that in the Bible that we need to go to this promised land? We got it pretty good here. No, they trusted the authority that God gave to Abraham that they needed to leave Ur and go to the promised land. Abraham is the first prefigurement of Jesus. Abraham's son Isaac had a son Jacob who wrestled with God and became known as Israel. And we find this in Genesis chapters 37, 39, and through 45. Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was named Joseph. Joseph properly interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. So here, God gave a man the ability to speak infallibly in a certain situation. The Egyptian Pharaoh made Joseph governor over Egypt. Joseph wisely rationed the country's produce in preparation for a time of famine. He eventually brought the 12 tribes of Israel to Egypt during the famine. Joseph is seen as an Old Testament prefiguration of Christ, and God spoke infallibly through him. Later, Moses frees the Israelites from Egypt, and God has him write down the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here, a man writes infallibly on the behalf of God. Moses is the second Old Testament prefigurement of Christ. David is the third prefigurement of Christ in the Old Testament. David is a man after God's own heart, yet he sins with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. God promises David that there will always be a successor to him to rule over Israel. Solomon was the first successor of David, but the kingdom of Israel broke up after that. At the time of Jesus, the Jews had three main offices in their religion. They had the high priest, they had the temple priests, and the Sanhedrin. The temple, Sanhed the temple Sanhedrin had the seat of Moses, where the high priest can give a binding decree to the Jews. The seat of Moses became known as the seat of Peter. The seat is called a cathedra. The church that houses the seat is called a cathedral. In the first century Jewish culture, they had local synagogues, and each local synagogue had a ruler of the synagogue who was a rabbi, and that rabbi could give binding decrees on his local synagogue group. And they also had a servant of the synagogue who helped run the place and a local Sanhedrin. We have to understand that the, when the Jews were spread out around the Mediterranean basin, they formed their own little Jewish communities to pass on the Jew, Jewish faith to their members. And the group of people that were Jews that practiced the Jewish faith were a synagogue community, and they worshipped in the synagogue build, building. And that compares to the church today, which is both a building and the Christians that worship there.
Now we're going to talk about the New Testament establishment of the magisterium. Jesus is the Messiah that sits on the throne of David. In Isaiah chapter 22, we learn that a successor of King David named Hezekiah has a minister named Shebna, who was replaced by Eliakim. The authority of the office of minister is shown by the robe he wears and the key he carries. When the Jewish disciples heard Jesus tell Peter that he was giving him the keys to the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16, they recognized the authority of a minister from the dynasty of King David. Peter was to become the prime minister over the whole church, and the rest of the disciples would become ministers in their own areas with authority to bind and loose. The disciples also recognized the office was handed on to successors as it was in the kingdom of David. The book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 used a similar symbolism, speaking plainly of Jesus having the key of David in his kingdom in heaven. Jesus left Peter behind on earth so that we would have a representative to guide the church that Jesus founded. That office was passed on to successors, like the other apostles passed on their offices to the bishops they ordained. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to guide his apostles into all truth. This promise is for the apostles, not every member of the church. In John chapter 20, right after Jesus' resurrection, he tells the apostles that any sins they forgive are forgiven, and any sins they retain are retained. This is the passing of Jesus' authority from the Father to his apostles. In Matthew chapter 28, before ascending into heaven, Jesus tells the apostles all the authority that God has given him, he passes on to the apostles. Jesus also tells the apostles to go out and teach the whole world everything he taught them and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises to be with them until the end of the age. Some people think that the end of the age that Jesus is referring to is the end of the apostolic age. But as Catholics, we recognize that Jesus' promise holds with his church until his return. We're talking about the church age here, the time of the church here on earth until Jesus' second coming. In Acts chapter 1, Peter and the rest of the apostles meet to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles. They choose Matthias by lot because that is how the Jewish priests were determined which priest would have the duties in the temple. The King James Bible tells us that they referred to Judas' office as a bishopric. The understanding from the beginning is that the apostles hold an office that has successors. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles go out and teach what Jesus taught them to the Jews. When the Jews realized they killed their Messiah, they asked, what must we do to be saved? Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The disciples that became the apostles handed on what Jesus taught them to the new Christians. Some of what they taught was written down. And we have that in the Gospels, and the interpretation of the Gospels is in the epistles. And they're authoritative teachings because the writers of the epistles, the letters, had authority from Jesus teaches. Because parchment was expensive and few people could read, the faith was passed on orally more than by writing. The apostles didn't give everybody a copy of the New Testament to go with their Old Testament because hardly anybody could afford the cost of receiving a hand-copied version of the Old Testament, and hardly anybody could read at that time. The oral tradition was supported by the written tradition. When there were disputes, they held councils, both local and ecumenical, to work them out. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes that he went to Jerusalem to receive the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John so that his preaching would not be in vain. This shows that the authority to preach comes from the church, not knowledge of the Bible. Paul didn't go around preaching because he had a copy of the New Testament. He knew that he had to get approval from the church leaders, Peter, James, and John, in order to teach with authority. In Acts chapter 15, there is a dispute in the church, so they hold the first ecumenical council, the Council of Jerusalem. After much dispute, Peter gets up and tells them how he saw the Holy Spirit come upon Cornelius and his family, without them becoming Jews first. The main dispute at the council was whether Gentiles had to become Jews first before they could become Christians. And the Jewish Christians were trying to push the Jewish works of the law, uh, which would included circumcision and the ceremonial and kosher laws on the Gentile Christians. However, the Council of Jerusalem gave a binding decree to all Christians that they no longer had to keep the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. They only had to refrain from eating meat that still had blood in it or that was sacrificed to idols. Some of the Jews resisted this decree and insisted on the works of the law after that. This is why Paul is always insisting in his writings that we are saved by Jesus' sacrifice and not by the Jewish works of the law. We need to know what law Paul is talking about when he mentions the works of the law. And we also read in Acts chapter 15 that the decree was sent out with certain men to be read to all in all the churches, and that that decree would be binding on those people. It begins with a line, you know, it seems good to be to the Holy Spirit and to us. And decrees from the church after that always start out that way because the Holy Spirit guides the church into giving correct binding teachings for all Christians. 
it's not so much that the men are perfect and can speak for God, but they're guided by the Holy Spirit in these particular circumstances to give correct teachings to the church. And if you sign up to be a Christian, you sign up to submit to these Holy Spirit-protected decrees from the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, not the Bible. So keep that in mind when somebody asks you, you know, why you think that the church can speak authoritatively for God and that it is a higher authority than the Bible. You can point out to them that nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Bible is the highest authority. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So that's why we need to listen to the church and not pretend to just go by the Bible. Because no church actually goes by just the Bible. I'm from a small town. We have five different conflicting Protestant churches. So obviously, none of them actually just go by the Bible or consider the Bible their highest authority. For each of these different Protestant churches, the highest authority is the leader of the church's interpretation of the Bible. And the people that attend those churches you know, can choose to believe that leader or they can go to some other Protestant church that teaches something closer to their own interpretation of the Bible. John's Gospel also tells us in chapters 20 and 21 that not everything is written in what we now call the Bible because no book could hold it all. There's only 27 letters in the New Testament and to think that everything that happened in the three years of Jesus' ministry and the first uh, say 30 years of Christianity is written down in 27 short writings. However, we do know that there's sufficient information there for us to know what Jesus taught when properly interpreted by the church that Jesus founded. Apostles went out and founded churches. They would appoint successors that we now call bishops by laying hands on them. We call this handing down of authority apostolic succession. The line of authority is from God the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to the apostles, and the apostles to the bishops they ordained, and the bishops to the bishops that they ordained. In 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 4, Paul tells Timothy to be a good minister, to teach soundly, and to not neglect the gift he was given through the laying on of his hands. Paul reminds him again in 2 Timothy 1.6, remember the gift you received with the laying on of my hands, referring to when he made Timothy a bishop. Paul also warns Timothy to be careful about whom he lays hands on and be sure they follow, they know and follow the faith before laying hands on them. This shows how the faith was passed on through the teachers, just a book. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul also lists the different positions in the church, like prophets, teachers, readers, etc. In Titus chapter 1, Paul reminds Titus that he left him in Crete to teach the people rightly and appoint presbyters, which is another word for bishop, in every town and to properly hand on the faith. Paul also tells Titus that the men he points should teach and appoint other men following the tradition of apostolic succession. In 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, Paul tells the Corinthians of the church practices and that we have no other practices and neither do the churches of God. Unity and practice expected among the Christians then and now. The bishops continue to hold councils that give Holy Spirit inspired binding decrees to the Christians, like the church leaders did in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem. The decree of the Council of Jerusalem directly contradicted what was taught in Genesis chapter 17, where God required Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised. This shows that the apostles had the authority from God to change the law of the Old Covenant. If the apostles in Acts chapter 15 only went by the scriptures that was available to them at that time, all the new Christians, males, would have been required to be circumcised. So obviously, the apostles were not going by scripture alone in Acts chapter 15. They were going by the authority that they had received from Jesus. Just as the interpretation of the Old Testament was passed on by oral tradition, synagogue network, the interpretation of the New Testament was passed on by the apostles to the bishops they ordained and on to the bishops that they ordained. When there were disputes about interpretation, they held local councils that we now call synods to determine interpretation just like the apostles did at the Council of Jerusalem. In the first century of the church, of the church uh, as early as 70 AD and perhaps as late as 90 AD, the church in Corinth had a dispute. So they wrote a letter to the Bishop of Rome. Clement was the Bishop of Rome at that time, and he wrote back that the apostles received their authority from Jesus, and the bishops received their authority from the apostles. So this shows that from the beginning, the bishops recognized their authority came from the apostles. Clement writes about the offices of bishop, priests, and deacons. So we know they existed at this time um, based on the Jewish religious offices of ruler of the synagogue and servant of the synagogue. And the Jews also had the temple priests and the high priests. And it's important to note that the church in Corinth, even though the apostle John was still alive, they, when they had a dispute, they wrote to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome sent a delegation to the church in Corinth to help sort out their problem. And the church in Corinth 
didn't just look in their New Testament to figure out the problem that they had to the authority of the church in Rome. And the letter from Pope Clement was actually read in their church at a yearly festival to remind them why, how the church in Rome and how the authority of the church works. In 107 AD, Ignatius, who is the bishop of Antioch, writes that the teachings of the church are passed on through the bishops, not just a book. Ignatius also tells us that wherever the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. So even in the second century, early on, the understanding is that if you want to know what Christianity is about, talk to your bishop, and that the church in Rome is the one presides over Christianity in general. Um, Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Rome, and he starts out his letter with to the church in Rome that presides over Christianity. So from the very beginning, after the city of Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, Christianity is centered in Rome. Around 150 AD, Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna and was ordained by John, the Apostle John, went to see the Bishop of Rome, Pope Victor, about the date to celebrate Easter. The Apostle John taught that they should celebrate Easter on the 14th of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. The rest of Christendom celebrated Easter on the first Sunday, after the first full moon, after the spring equinox, following the traditional way of determining the date of the Passover. So Polycarp has a tradition handed on by an apostle that was different than the way the rest of Christianity was celebrating Easter. And he goes to the Bishop of Rome to work of Rome. Pope Victor told him that he should celebrate Easter on the same date as everybody else. But Polycarp held firm to his idea that this is what the Apostle John taught him, and he stuck with that teaching. Polycarp passed on his office to a bishop called Polycrates. It looks like Polycrates, if you, if you ever come across it while reading. Um, and Polycrates also went to the Bishop of Rome about this dispute on the date of Easter. And at that time, the Bishop of Rome threatened to excommunicate Polycrates from the church for not listening to his authoritative teaching that the church in Smyrna should celebrate Easter the same time as the rest of, of Christendom. This issue of when to celebrate Easter was not settled until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. But if we look back upon this uh, we see that the Pope had the right teaching 
but Polycrates and Polycarp didn't want to listen to him. And even though tried wanted to excommunicate Poly, Polycrates, uh, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, convinced him to keep allow Polycrates to continue to celebrate Easter as John had taught them to keep, help keep unity in the church. We have to remember at this time it was illegal to be a Christian and the only way to keep the church going was to secretly convert people and we couldn't make a big deal out of this dispute about the date of Easter while Christianity was still illegal. In 180 AD, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, wrote a five-volume book against heresies. If you ever wonder about the different interpretations of Christianity early on in the church, read this book, and you'll find all kinds of goofy ideas that the early Christians had based on the little bit of information that was available in what later became the New Testament and people's own ideas. Irenaeus learned the faith from Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who learned the faith from the Apostle John. So Irenaeus got his authority from Polycarp, who got it from the Apostle John. Again, this is another example of apostolic succession. Irenaeus writes that if two churches have a doctrinal dispute, they need to see which church can be traced back in its history back to an apostle. Or, he says, all you have to do is find out what the church in Rome teaches, because all churches have to be in agreement with the church in Rome, because Peter and Paul taught there. So as early as 180 AD, Irenaeus, who learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John, recognizes that the central authority of the Catholic Church is in Rome, not in each local city that has apostolic succession. The later ecumenical councils gave binding decrees, just like the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This happened in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, where they established the date of Easter and, the de and decreed that Jesus and the Father are one. At that time, in 325, there were two groups of Christians some thought that uh, Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father, and some taught that the, Jesus was co-eternal with God the Father. Uh, some, there were some people thought that Jesus didn't become God until his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came down upon him and a voice from heaven was heard to say, this is my only begotten son, listen to him. The Council of Nicaea gave a decree that was binding on all Christians that Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father, even though he came into time and space at a certain point through the Virgin Mary.
In 385 AD, they held the first Council of Constantinople. The church decreed that the Holy Spirit is also one with Jesus and the Father. So in 385 AD, people were, after they had finally accepted that Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father, it was then about the Holy Spirit. And people didn't, some people didn't want to accept that the Holy Spirit was God also. But in 385 at the Council of Constantinople, the church decreed that the Holy Spirit was one with Jesus and the Father. And this is where we get our idea of the Trinity. God is three persons in one God. It's hard for us humans to wrap our head around because we're used to thinking of each individual person being their own being. But the Trinity is three is three persons in one God. The problem is that some people don't want to accept the authority of the council and split. This happened in 431 AD after the Council of Ephesus that decreed that uh, Mary is the mother of God because she is the mother of Jesus. In 449 AD, Pope Leo wrote about the two natures of Jesus and this helped establish the decree of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. At this time in Christianity, there were some people that taught that Jesus had a human nature and a divine nature, and they were separate natures. But the Council of Chalcedon established that, yes, there are two natures of Jesus, but they're completely bonded together into one nature in what we call the hypostatic union. Some Christians always reject the decisions of councils, even up through Vatican II, and they put their salvation at risk when they reject the teaching of these councils. After the Council of Jerusalem, you know, the Jewish Christians were still trying to push the works of the law on the Gentile Christians. After the Council of Nicaea, there were still some Christians pushing this idea that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. And after the Council of Constantinople, there were still some Christians that did not accept the that the Holy Spirit was one with God the Father and God the Son. And when some Christians didn't want to recognize Mary as the mother of God, they also continued to push that idea. And even when the church taught that, you know, Jesus' two natures are fully bound together, some Christians didn't want to accept that either. And the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD 
part of the problem at that time was that the way the Greek was translated into local languages didn't translate so well in those other languages. Didn't want to agree with what the church taught because it didn't quite sound right to them. But in our modern times, more and more of those Christians are coming back into the Catholic Church because they properly understand what the church was teaching at that time. The office of cardinal was developed in 1059 AD when clergy exclusively in Rome and the seven neighboring dioceses developed the right of the electing the Pope. Because of their resulting importance, the term cardinal from the Latin word cardo, meaning hinge, was applied to them. The bishops around Rome there, who became the cardinals, you know, were the hinge figures in electing a new pope. Role became more important than the bishops around the world. In the 12th century, the practice of appointing ecclesiastics from outside Rome as cardinals began. So by the 1100s, they started appointing cardinals outside of the city of Rome and that surrounding area to help give authority to churches outside of Rome in electing the Pope. Originally, the cardinals could be deacons, priests, or bishops. However, in 1917, canon law introduced the requirement that a cardinal had to at least be a priest. In 1962, Pope John Paul XXIII introduced the requirement that a cardinal be a bishop first. Cardinals are the princes of the church, appointed by the pope. He generally chooses bishops who head departments of the Roman Curia or important Episcopal sees throughout the world. There's something like cabinet members who assist the president or department ministers who assist the prime minister, who is the pope. For example, cardinal secretary of state represents the Vatican to foreign governments. Other cardinals have different areas of responsibility called congregations. One cardinal oversees all the bishops around the world. Another congregation is Catholic education. Another deals with evangelization and so on. So the cardinals in the Curia serve as the Pope's right-hand men, so to speak. The, the cardinals help take the load off of the Pope so he doesn't have to do everything in the church. And when the church became so big that we needed cardinals to help run the different areas, it helped the church to run, not necessarily more efficiently, but more easily. Uh, because if the Pope has to work on running the church all the time, 
He doesn't have time for personal prayer and reflection and Bible study so that he can be guided by the Holy Spirit better in his guidance for the whole church. And this is a common practice in any business and any organization that grows, you know, beyond, you know, 50 or 100 people. As a whole, the cardinals compose the College of Cardinals, which advises the Pope, and those cardinals under the age of 80, the death or resignation of a Pope, elect the successor to the Pope. The primary responsibility of a cardinal is to elect a new Pope when a Pope dies or abdicates the papacy. However, cardinals don't just hang out doing nothing until the Pope dies. They have their many responsibilities running different areas of the church in the curia, or they could be a cardinal in a major diocese somewhere in the world. A different cardinal also heads up several different commissions and councils as well as the three high courts of the Catholic Church. There is the three high courts are the Apostolic Penitentiary, the Apostolic Signatura, and the Roman Rota. All of these deal with canon law and its application and interpretation. So the church has an official system for resolving questions and disputes, and canon law is the official rules of the Catholic Church. But, of course, those rules need to be interpreted and applied to different situations. So the church has an official office that deals with those kind of things. Um, here in the United States, the Congress passes laws, the Senate approves them, and the president signs them. But it is the Supreme Court that makes sure that those laws are properly applied to the citizens of the U.S., and the Catholic Church, you know, follows a similar kind of setup because whenever there's rules, the rules need to be interpreted. And when there's questions about the rules, they need to be sorted out. And the decision of the high courts in the Catholic Church are binding on all Catholics. If you sign up to be a Catholic, you sign up to submit to the authority of the Catholic Church. Always keep that in mind because a lot of people don't want to submit to the authority of the Catholic Church. The cardinals who don't work in the Curia may run an archdiocese, mostly functioning as a bishop would, by ordaining and confirming and doing the day-to-day -day business of being the chief shepherd of the archdiocese. These cardinals may also supervise two to several dioceses, usually in the same state or region. So each bishop has a diocese, but a bishop that is in charge of multiple dioceses or a very large diocese is known as an archbishop. And we need to pray for our bishops because they are in very difficult situations where they have people that want to rebel from the church and they have official church teaching 
and they have churches with priests that want to do their own thing. And they're trying to keep everybody together and on the same page and working in the same direction and also trying to maintain their holiness and connection to God. So when you're saying your prayers, pray for the bishops because being a middle manager is always a difficult situation. Jesus left behind a church with kingdom-like authority because the Messiah was to sit on the throne of David. The kings of that time, when Jesus walked the earth, had ministers that helped them run the kingdom. Their authority was symbolized by the keys that those ministers carried. Jesus gave the keys to Peter and the apostles, who handed on their authority through apostolic succession. Unity can only be maintained through authority. The question is, whose authority do you accept? Our best chance of salvation is through the church that Jesus left behind to carry on his mission. So that's why you're better off in the Catholic Church, where you have the authority of Jesus and the protection of the Holy Spirit so that you can know that you're getting correct teaching. Now, you may find local priests, local bishops, and even some archbishops, and even some cardinals that don't, they put their own spin on the official teachings of the Catholic Church. And we need to keep in mind, we need to learn what the church actually teaches and a local bishop or priest isn't teaching something that is not within the teachings of the Catholic Church. We need to stick with the official teachings of the Catholic Church and ignore what the local bishop or priest is telling us. Um, if you are in a church and your priest is teaching something that you think is outside what the Catholic Church teaches, you should set up a meeting with your priest and explain to him you know, that you think he's not teaching what the church teaches. Um, he should be able to show you in the catechism something that supports what he's been teaching in his church or an encyclical letter or a council decree that supports what he's teaching. If he can't, then you should show him why you think he's wrong based on your understanding of the catechism or a council encyclical or a papal encyclical or a council decree. And try to convince your priest, you know, that what the official teachings of the Catholic Church say and how it's in conflict with what he's doing. Now, if that doesn't work out, then you should appeal to your local bishop, uh, check out the, uh, the diocese website, and there is a place that you can submit a question or you can write a letter to them. And it's up to the local bishop to 
make sure that the local priest is teaching correctly. And that's why bishops have a real hard job. And if your bishop does not enforce Catholic teaching on his local priest, you can appeal to, uh, well, here in the United States, we have the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. You can appeal to them, and you can appeal to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Um, our job is to help encourage our priests and bishops to teach the truth of the Catholic faith, but not necessarily our interpretation of the Catholic faith. So pray for our priests and our bishops and do your best to help sound teaching to be passed on in your local church and worldwide. I always tell people that if they learn something from me and they don't think it's right, that they should check the catechism because although I do my best to pass on, pass on what is taught, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and by encyclicals and council decrees. Some people may misinterpret what I'm saying, or I might even have it wrong, and I want to pass on the Catholic faith, not my interpretation of the Catholic faith. So in the Catholic Church, we are blessed to have authoritative teachings and references that are generally available to everybody now through the internet. You don't have to go to some library somewhere and look through a book um, on the internet. You can go to your um, diocese website, or in the U.S. we have the United States Council of Catholic Bishop website, and you can type in a question there and get an answer on what the Catholic Church teaching is. Um, we can use the internet for a lot of good things by finding official teachings of the Catholic Church. So there's no excuse not to know them. Now, locally in my town where we have five, five different Protestant churches, one of the churches is a Lutheran church. Now, that Lutheran Church is a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Here in the U.S., we have the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, the Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Church, we have the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and we have the North American Lutheran Church. So these are all, that's four different versions of Lutheranism, and they don't all teach the same thing. Uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America has a liturgy for marrying two people of the same sex. Uh, so that is, they don't have unity because they don't have a bishop of Rome to guide the whole church and give binding decrees on everybody in Lutheranism. Uh, we also have a United Methodist Church in, Memphis, in my town, uh, and the United Methodist Church recently split because some of the people in the United Methodist Church thought that it was okay for the church to marry two people of the same sex and to allow people with same-sex attraction 
to be clergy. So a new branch of the United Methodist Church is broken off, and it's the traditional Methodist Church. Also in my town, we have a free Methodist Church, which is a more modern and casual version of the Methodist Church, more like your typical evangelical Bible church. And we also have a First Baptist Church. And the First Baptist Church is more like a typical modern evangelical Bible church. Uh, on my way to work, I drive through a small town that has a free will, Methodist, or free will Baptist church, an old regular Baptist church, and that's how it's written on their sign. And then there's also a First Baptist Church. And so therefore, in this little town, there's three different versions of a Baptist church because the people want to believe what they believe about the Bible. They don't want to submit even to the Baptist church. So that about wraps up today's show. If you want to if you want to ask me any questions, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions, or you can look me up on Facebook. Uh, I also have many apologetic writings that are going to be available on the Four Persons website soon. And I also have a book called How Old Is Your Church? You can buy it on Amazon for $6, but prices are going to be going up soon due to increased printing costs. So if you want to get it for $6, get it today, because by the end of June, it'll be a new price. And if you can't afford $6 for a book, send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com and I will send you a free copy of PDF copy of it so you can read it for yourself on your phone or your tablet or your computer. It has 25 of my most apologetic writings and they will give you a great start in learning how to share the truth of the Catholic faith. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. May God bless and guide your efforts in sharing the truth of the Catholic faith. Thanks for tuning in.